What up, what up, Meepsters? This is Ryan Rainbro, and if you're hearing this, that means you're about to listen to one of the 99 free episodes of the Meep Meep podcast available wherever you cast pods. But keep in mind that there are new and unreleased episodes of the show on patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. So you'll want to sign up there to hear future episodes and also other side projects like Choo Choo, the show about soundtracks and contribute suggestions for future episodes as well. Will I listen to your suggestion? <laughs> There's only one way to find out. Patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. Bye! Welcome to Meet Meet, the Roadrunner podcast, where we go through the albums of Roadrunner Records with the artists who made them and the musicians they influenced. Let's roll! What up, what up, Meepsters? I'm Ryan Rainbow, and welcome to Living with a Pod Complex, the Meep Meep spinoff, if you will, that uh, deals with the history of Roadrunner Records distributing the Trustkill Records label. Throughout the history of Roadrunner, they distributed many other labels in many other countries, so it's no surprise that in the mid-2000s, Trustkill Records had about uh, 20 albums released and re-released through them. This episode explores a true classic rock and roll album of my lifetime, Open Hands 2005 album, You and Me. This record not only has one of my favorite songs ever, but also some of the best in time-tested packaging. So it was an honor to talk to the mastermind behind the masterpiece, Justin Isham, all about it. So you and me, you know, it comes out comes out on Trustkill after they release the Dream, which is uh, like a collection of previously recorded EPs with, uh, I think, kind of a completely different lineup than you and me ends up being as you established. Uh, yeah, that uh, it's kind of open. Yeah. It's like an ever evolving unit, right? Yeah, basically. You know, I mean, I would say uh, you and me went in. Uh, where I left off with uh, the dream, which was yeah, definitely a couple EPs. Um, that was done, you know, with Alex Rodriguez playing drums, and it has a very specific kind of style. And and uh, so by the time I'd gotten, I was, you know, I I went to high school with this dude Paxton, and we were in some death metal bands, grindcore bands, and and uh, we've we always played together regardless of uh, whatever the hand was doing. And at that point we decided just to do like uh, the you and me record together because it just was the right style. Like that dude just got style. So, and it's different than Alex's, for example, you know, and he went on to do this band Seosin and which was more in, in tune with that style, you know, and then you and me, just became what it was. Him and I went out to Colorado and made that record. So do you feel like <laughs> you and me does thematically continue from the dream? Cause to me, they just sound like totally different bands. No, I, I say they're not, they're not thematically. Uh, they're not, no, there's no theme involved there at all. 
I was hoping for kind of for each record to be its own deal, to be honest with you. So, uh, that's always been my goal. You know, I'm sure everyone would, would like to say that, but I've actually like made it a kind of a mission. I really don't want to get, uh, I'm just all, I'm into everything, you know? So, so yeah, I think you and me was different for sure than that, than the dream shit, a hundred percent and meant to be. And also, you know, it involves you know a different drummer, which changes up my style and my shit completely. And you know, I had the same. The, if anything, the theme was going to be like the vocal. Obviously, the vocals I wanted to keep within for like some realm of you know similarity. There, you and me, same way. Except this time, I had like Paul Malinowski who helped produce it. Uh, He's in his own epic biblical fucking level band called Shiner, and he played bass on it. So that already there, there you go. That changes the vibe up a little bit. You know, it's like all these kind of things. You know, at this point, I got this dude Gil Sharon to play drums, and that guy's pretty insane on his own right. And like uh, the dude who played bass on that, particularly on a couple songs, he used to be in the band Prong. So it's like. You know, and look at Gil Sharon, this drummer from uh, for the Weirdo record. Like, look at his bands. Uh, uh, beyond, like uh, Marilyn Manson and what's that shit? And Pussifer and Team Sleeper. He's into that shit. So for a lot of these guys, like they bring some different influence, you know, to like to to the demos that they hear at least in the beginning. So that's kind of how you and me went down. Same. Gil ever tell you any Figure good Otep stories? No. <laughs> so the dream to me, you know, it's funny you mention, uh, of course, Alex going on to play in Seosin because the dream does sound more of like yeah. a kind of a, a straight ahead. I don't want to say radio rock band, but like just a rock and roll band. And you and me, where as of course, it's still rock and roll almost has like this. It, it's interesting because it, it feels like a progressive band, but the songs aren't like particularly long, which is kind of, you know, a, a staple of progressive rock. Uh, but, right. Um, it does have that sort of like. I'm sure that I wouldn't be the first to say like the Queens of the Stone Age or kind of like a stoner rock thing, but um, it's, it's right. so many songs on it and so many of them are, are short. Very few of them, you know, breach the, the three minute mark. So it, it's funny that uh, that's something that I would immediately as, uh, associate with like that style, like a progressive or jam band kind of thing is like a, a six minute epic over and over again. But well, there was no lack of. Uh... You know, for I mean, there's no lack of growing up here in my life on King and things like King Crimson and and you know the early Genesis and you know uh, Nectar and a, you know a whole I can just go on with prog rock. I always liked that shit, but I agree with you. I'm also not in, but I'm not into seven minute you know epic things and and like I don't have the attention span. So there's that on just that note. And secondly, you and me would be different because. Uh, Pax and the drummer and I were already on the side doing our kind of like own stoner rock ish group called Six Demon Bag. And we were, that's kind of what we were just doing for fun. And then we we're like, fuck, these songs are actually killing. And a lot of that, that jam, that was just a jam thing. That jam basically evolved itself into the songs on You and Me anyway. So it really just stemmed from us, you know getting stoned and jamming. So if it has that vibe, that's exactly why, dude. Yeah, and going out to Fort Collins at the blasting room where it was recorded and meeting up with uh, Paul Malinowski and uh, this other dude, Mike Levine, who actually ended up 
playing drums on some uh, the Honey record and this Weirdo record. He played a track and just became a good bro. He's also another killer drummer. But he came there to engineer, uh, just like assist and everything and like, and help out. And we all, you know, it helps just to show up there and get real stoned the entire fucking time. And we were there for like two months. So that just added to it in general, you know? So anything that that sound has just came from the experience in general, I would say. And the album definitely feels like, I wouldn't by any means say like a concept record, but certainly feels like all the songs belong together. You know, you kind of got to listen to it as a unit versus uh, a track. I agree. Individually. So is that something you planned on? Oh, yeah. That's what I try to plan on. If If you got that vibe, then fuck yeah, success. Because... That's how I, I try to look at every record, you know, uh, or anything that I'm trying to do musically. I'm trying to give as a whole, a whole piece, you know, and just because I'm not, I don't write like a, I just, I'm incapable. I have not discovered, you know, if I'm trying to be the professor and discover the formula, I've, I've fucking failed. I had to write like a hit single. You know, like how it's that song, like that one song that everyone just can't fucking deny. So instead, I'd rather just be the whole record that you can overall look and be like, wow. Like individually, I, you know, okay, there might be some parts where people would be like, wow, that part sucks. But as a whole, when you're done listening to it, you can be like, shit, that record kicks ass. You know? Yeah, no, I definitely as opposed feel that to like, because I hate, there's nothing more than I hate than is to discover you know, or to get turned, turned on to some band or hear one song that kicks ass. And then I get fucking tricked into like purchasing the whole record and the rest of it sucks. You know, I don't like that either. So I prefer to take quantity, you know, over one, just one quality. I would rather just have the whole thing be good, you know? So if that's possible, of course, there's always going to be some duds. You know, but it depends, you know, art's in the eye of the beholder. It's only a dud if you don't like it. So, (laughs) you know, it only sucks to the person who thinks it sucks. A lot of that shit to me kicks ass. There's a lot of shit that kicks ass right now that people are like, this is the best that I think sucks. So who am I to talk, you know? Well, yeah, and I think it uh, the fact that there are a lot of like shorter songs lends to kind of the, the album flowing together, too, because there's a lot of like peaks and valleys versus, you know, songs that yeah. <laughs> suck or don't. There's songs that are meant to be more, you know, high impact than others. And some of them almost feel like interludes, for lack of a better word, even though, you know, they're fully fleshed yeah. out songs. But, uh, you know, the the yeah. interesting thing for me with it, though, and you're talking about not knowing how to write a hit song or, or whatnot so the dream, when the dream came out, I got it because it came out on Treskill and I got things that were on Treskill, I think up for the first like 65 or something like that. Um, <laughs> and I wasn't into it at all. I didn't get it. But I say that to say the, the reason why I'm even bringing that up instead of just letting you know I didn't like something you did. Yeah, no, I get it. It's, that's, I, hey, it's all good. The reason I'm telling <laughs> you that is because when I first heard Tough Guy, I was like, this is one of the best songs I, I'm to this day. It's one of my favorite songs of all time. So when, you know, especially oh, yeah. talking about how the albums feel different. I mean, this felt like a whole new band to me. Like I, I don't even really go back to the dream. I did revisit it after you and me came out because I was so obsessed with you and me. I was like, Oh, you know, maybe I was missing something with the dream, but they just really are two <laughs> completely different 
different ideas. And um, did did you find after re-listening to it that you had missed anything, or was it just not your shit at all? I mean, still. I, I it's still just not for it's not it's by no means bad. And I would tell you, in fact, I would love to tell you. I think it's bad, but it's not. It's uh, it's just not. Uh, <laughs> Just not what I'm into. Whereas you and me, to me, is just like perfect. I mean, it's just this flawless album, start to finish. And Tough Guy is like the the centerpiece of it. And a big part of uh, why I love this album too is I really love you know Haley's vocals throughout it. And I know that there's other yeah. guest vocalists too. But having those almost I don't want to say duets, but for lack of a better word, duets on there, those are you know real high points for me too. And they kind of carry me throughout the throughout the album and. So when, I just really Excellent. need to let you know the Tough Guy is one of my favorite songs in the history of recorded sound. So, and I think that it could have been a hit. great, man. I, can, I, can, I don't think you could give a better compliment than that. Shit, <laughs> in history of recorded sound, I'll take it, dude. And possibly unrecorded <laughs> sounds. You know, I don't have all those. Okay, and possibly for the shit that hasn't even been recorded yet. Right. I'll even take that. <laughs> if only the rest of the world thought that. I just don't think they heard it because I think if Tough Guy would have <laughs> no, been, probably not. <laughs> if Tough Guy would have been, you know, widely pushed and on the radio, not to say that whoever is pushing it didn't do a good job, but it, I've never, I can't imagine someone hearing that song and not being like, "This is the best thing." I just think it's so, good. especially the time it came out with how big, you know, things like Queens of the, because you know the right album, like Queens. The album opens with pure concentrated evil, and I remember the first time I heard that song, which of course was after I had heard tough guy just getting the record i was like oh this reminds right. me of how songs for the deaf opens where it just opens with this you know ripping rocker before it kind of goes into the rest of it so not the, the same album or you guys are the same band but no i, I get it yeah. i heard the comparison i mean i wasn't you know i i personally wasn't super fan so you know, I had to like compare myself just to like say, but I could as the genre and the, the vibe. I could see a maybe a comparison. I was more into Caius than I ever was into Queens, but at the same time, hey, I'll take that comparison too. <laughs> you know, I don't give a shit. It's all great. <laughs> um, the album, of course, is called "You and Me," which is there. There's a song called "You and Me," and uh, so what came yeah. first, that title or the song, and why? Why is that the title of the album? We'll be back after a quick break. If you love good music and good podcasts, you'll love Roots Music Rambler. I'm Jason Falls. My co-host Francesca Folinazzo and I talk to the singers, songwriters, musicians, and more in Americana, alt-country, bluegrass, folk, blues, and beyond. We share our own takes on the latest news in the space and recommend new music for you to explore every episode. Come get to the roots of the music you love. Find us at RootsMusicRambler.com or go wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to Roots Music Rambler. Um, how did I come up with the album title? The song, that song, no, that song just, I just decided that song had the title track quality. And also, I think I say it in the song, so. That's how I get, I get a lot of titles if I just say the words. I'm a, you know, I'm a pretty shite lyricist, so I keep it real simple. And then the album title came from well the album title came from a picture that I basically made of a guy and a girl standing and overlooking this I kind of made this collage 
uh, that became, that was the inspiration for the album cover is that I had this guy and this girl kind of stand a silhouette of a guy and a girl overlooking this valley and holding hands. And that's where I just came up with you and me. And I debated the me and you and you and I and everything else, but you and me seemed just to be what it is. And then that was, and then I had like a sunset of spirals and that, that's kind of really what became, uh, for this dude, Don Clark, who did the artwork and the name you and me stuck. So I just, you know, cause I originally was calling the album, Oh, hi. And that it was just because, and then, it became you and me. Don Clark took that artwork I had made with the spirals and really just went extra with it and reduced the couple down to a couple of hands, which made more sense considering the band's name was open hand. And that's what it was. It was really just like that simple. I had this art. I'm like, Oh, this, all right, you and me. I like the song. I like, I like the words. There's the album cover. That's the name. We're sticking with it. And there it is. (laughs) Well, you mentioned the album cover, which I did want to ask you about. So that's awesome. You kind of gave some insight on that. But of course, the the album, when it originally comes out on Trustkill, has a very unique packaging, you know, as far as the booklet and everything. Yeah, the die die cut. Right, right. Which super makes it stand out and is is such a cool, unique aspect to it. So was that your idea or was that the label's idea? Who's who's coming with that? No, that was a combination. No, no, no label. Josh, Josh wasn't involved in any of like this kind of part of it. I felt like, uh, you know, Josh just kind of let me do it and he didn't really get involved. And like that was between me and Don. Cause I, Don Clark sent me the artwork back of like an idea. And then it was talked about, about like doing the seed as first, like doing the CD. There's a lot of spirals and, sh- and circles and shit on that cover. So it's like, maybe do some spirals and, and then something about a die cut of just one, one like this, these, one of the spirals will be the CD. And then Don Clark went on from there and made this just badass. I mean, he did the, the dream one too. And that one was die cut and opened up. He did. He's awesome. That dude is insane. And especially at the time, I mean, so much shit has been done since, but like, I just thought, I don't know. I, to me, this, that whole process, seemed just epic because I was not expecting anything. You know, the dream I recorded at my house and I knew we were on trust kill, which I considered like a straight, you know, not a straight edge and like straight edge hardcore label. And like, I was not expecting the, like this, the, the epic quality that to me, when you and me was done, like that to me was just like quality. And I was not even expecting it because I'm not even used to it. It just kicked ass to me, that whole experience from like the studio, you know, which is the blast room, which has become like legendary now. But when we were there, they were still fucking building it. You know, we had to use the toilet at the the fucking carpet store next door. (laughs) So it was a little rough. And, and think about this. We were there for fucking two months. So to, to take a shit or shower or do anything involved going to someone's house or going to the carpet store. So, it was a long process regardless, but it just came out so much better than I, I personally was expecting. Dude, I mean, I thought the songs already fucking shredded, but I just knew that after I saw the package and the artwork and the, the, the J card thing opening and, you know, the mastering that was done and like just the whole thing, man. And it was like, I was extra proud, you know? 
Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's such a cool, I, I think even to this day, it's a unique thing, especially since CDs, you know, have kind of gone by the wayside. So it's not like people are thinking of yeah. unique ways to package it. But really, I mean, the, the die cut, of course, you find out when you open it up, how intricate it is. But the coolest part that, that really drew my eye at the time was on the back, you can actually see the disc itself through the back with the with the artwork and everything. And yeah, just, put put in on put in reverse in the packaging process. Right, right. So the disc you becomes know? part of the outer packaging as well it's just right. it's a really cool idea so the album ends up being distributed by roadrunner which of course is what i typically focus on the roadrunner records catalog were you a fan of any roadrunner bands or anything like that coming up yeah but no i i was i i remembered suffocation i mean i was just into death metal in, in general there's a lot of florida bands that were pumping out you know like and then there was napalm deaths and all kinds of other stuff but i would you know you know sepultura is one of like that's that like how, that band kind of changed my existence, you know, when I was, and when I first heard Arise from Sepultura, like, I was full on into that type of music. And that was probably like, what, 91 or something. The reason I remember is I, I first heard Sepultura's Arise album the first time ever. My dad, a friend of mine, and I were, went to um, Clash of the Titans oh, out here uh, that had, that had, you know, but it had Megadeth, Slayer, Anthrax, and Alice in Chains opened. But on the way to that show, like my pops was into metal and shit like that too. On the way to that show, we heard Sepultura. I was 16. And that was where I realized, because prior to that, I was listening to a lot of metal that did not have that caliber of expertise. Sure. You know, and uh, that changed everything for me as a guitar, as everything. Just changed it. That kind of shit. This band disincarnate. Uh, that this band cancer. These are like just certain bands that had a certain like fucking ruthlessly hard sound that just wasn't just to be like grindy just for no reason. And like I just changed. I don't know. That shit changed my life. You know. And then then you can get into days like Pantera and shit like that. But but uh, you know, like look at the first Fear Factory record. That shit changed a lot of people. Oh yeah, that was like, and especially they're out from out here in L.A. So like, I was seeing Fear Factory a lot even prior to that record coming out, you know, and like, that was that was some epic shit too, big time. But but then I also you know I also saw bands like at a certain point in my life I saw uh, right when I started Open Hand like this band I just saw some bands that changed my whole thought process you know that band hum for example i saw early enough on where i was like where i was so into heavy grindy shit and then i saw hum at this place coos cafe out here and they were devastatingly loud and like like too loud for the venue which already like inspired me and then two they didn't have to be all grindy and they were they were just as heavy as anything else you know and then I realized, ah, yes, there's more of the formula. You don't have to, like, you just don't have to be heavy for heavy's sake. There's, like, there's a lot more you can do with it, possibly, you know. Yeah, and that's so. actually reflective in You and Me. There's songs like, you know, like, um, The Ambush is heavy as hell, right? But it's not like, you wouldn't think of it as, like, heavy metal, but it's so heavy. Yeah, exactly. Like at least enough. Uh, at least, hey, at least you're picking up. Like, at least uh, influence is there, you know. 
it's what you do with the influence, I think. So. And it even has like those dissonant chords underneath too, which are not being used in the same yeah. way. Like a metal core band would use them, but they're the same. <laughs> they're the same chords, right? Right. Yeah, basically, without having to be so metal about it, you know, just get your point across that it's more of like a like. I would rather put out that I'm capable of it, but I don't like. I don't want. I want. That's what I'd rather like. The band's capable of being heavy as shit. We just use like restraint instead of just like going, you know, because I mean, I'd be, and I was in just death metal bands and our whole fucking mission was to like go forward and like be hard as shit. And that's where I, you know, learned at least like got down with guitar that way, but it just made for, uh, it just made for repetitiveness, you know, and I was just like, I gotta get I gotta move forward, man, on a different way. You know, I can't just sit there and fucking scream and shit the whole time. And now I'm like, I want to play guitar and I don't want to just have to be like, you know, look what I can do all the fucking time, you know. And and, I, and I'm not even a very good, insanely good guitar player. So the this mentality of like, look what I can do. Like, I can't. I can look what I can't do. So there's that, you know. <laughs> Well, you mentioned screaming, you know, there's a, it's interesting because the album kind of starts and ends with the two songs that have screaming, but they're both very understated and um, muted. Uh, Pure Concentrated Evil has like these screams underneath the main vocal and right. it's kind of at the end. And then Hard Night has screaming where it sounds like you're like super far away from the microphone. And I'm sure that's a, a deliberate choice too. But was that uh, something that you were hesitant to do to include screaming in or just felt like it? it no. No, no, I just, I just, if it's, if it's cool, it's cool. I'm not opposed at all. You know, I just didn't want to make a whole record of it. Sure. You know, that's all. And I, you know, it's, uh, so I'm cool to have any of that in there. And like, and, and even if it's more so like, uh, or if it's a guest vocalist in, in general that can just bring something to the table that's, so it's just not me having to do it, you know, or me having to harmonize with my, I just, you know, I prefer if someone else can get up in there, you know? So, and if they bring something cool to the table, you know, where, so I don't have to, if I, if, if I could right now, and if I needed hard vocals, I probably wouldn't do them now. You know, I would have just some dude who can kick ass at doing them, <laughs> you know, like yeah, someone who actually is good at that shit. <laughs> so, <laughs> Do the songs Tough Girl and Tough Guy have anything connected other than those titles? Are they musically, you know, two different sides of each other? Uh, no. I don't know. I just feel like they just kind of worked it together, and they had a similar thing riff-wise, like guitar riff. I don't know. They just seemed, they seemed to be joined. I don't know exactly why. And Tough Girl became that uh, as soon as we added uh, Haley's vocals, and then it became Tough Guy and Tough Girl, because never once in the songs did I say those words. It just seemed to, like, work out because I had them next to each other and Haley did the vocals on one and she is like a pretty, I mean, at the time was a tough fucking chick. So it just seemed to work out that way, you know? Yeah. It's, and really, I don't know. it's just that, it's that simple. It's like <laughs> no thought really at all. <laughs> I like that though. It makes, it makes it easier, right? That's how it organically yeah, becomes it this, uh, this art, 
work that I enjoy. But uh, but Haley, I don't know anything about, but she's on a couple of these songs on here, and they're some of my favorite songs on the whole album. So can you tell me more about her, like how she got involved in the project? Yeah, she was in Fort Collins, Colorado, uh, while we were there. Paxton and I basically just moved into that studio. And then, because, and we didn't have really any cash either there, so we were just... It was it's it was a bizarre experience. Anyway, uh, we met her because her and her boyfriend were in this band, and I wish I could remember the name because they were really fucking cool. I'm thinking, and maybe you can look this up on your own, but they were called Monofog. They were pretty cool and very much sounding like you would expect with her singing. And then uh, we hung out. I think we got stoned a few times and I don't know how, I can't remember how we actually met her and her boyfriend might've been Paxton. Cause he's a much more, uh, a guy would just meet people anyway. Uh, found out she sang and we heard her, her group and we were like, Oh dude, there you go. Pretty, pretty perfect. Not even ever thinking, by the way, there was never going to be any girls' vocals. It just happened. It just seemed like, there, there you go. I was having a hard time writing lyrics like any, like usual anyway. So, shit, she can just come up with some shit and come to the studio. We'll get stoned, and you can record some vocals while you're in there. And that's exactly what it was. And it was like a, you know, not a one-take Tony, but in her case, like a two-take Tina. You know, <laughs> like... There it is. She got it. She got it done, and there it was done, finished. That was it. The song "Waiting for Katie," which I assume is named after Katie, who's on the song, uh, has yeah. Alex on drums. So, was this one of the earlier songs you yeah. wrote for the album? It was an er- no. It was an earlier riff. It was Alex's drums from a completely different uh, idea. Because I, you know, I had my own studio, so we were recording all the time. I recorded endless, you know, drums to this, maybe like, you know, play drums to this idea. So then we would do that. And then, all right, that idea guitar-wise sucks now, but the drums are cool. So I just basically got those drums and put them onto a new riff, which was that riff. And Katie J is a girl named Katie J. She did her own thing, like folk, like a singer-songwriter type of shit. And for a, a quick minute, she was playing guitar in open hand. And... Because uh, she's a pretty cool guitarist, but uh, you know, just just not up to the not up to the caliber. But regardless of that, she had her own thing going, and uh, that waiting for Katie was like, "Fuck it, let's just do that song." So that song in its entirety is recorded at a different time, you know. Oh wow! Just so, repurposed. Like I mean, even even the guitar riffs and the bass and the ending of it, everything was recorded at. Uh, a friend of mine, Captain Dane's house, which is where I was living, and at the time, and he, we had a studio in the back room, and we ha- that's where I had recorded her vocals and guitars and all the shit, just on top of some old Alex Rodriguez drums, you know. That's awesome. Though. So let, and it's let and, but it, yeah, it becomes a song. No hell no, dude! I'm the king of of pe- raping and pillaging my own shit. <laughs> you know, I will go. I have endless endless tunes and i will go back on a pretty regular basis and think oh dude that riff is too good and then the whole song sucks but the riff is too good so i'll take that out 
and see if it can be like, you know, reinstated to something a little more irrelevant and positive, something. I'm the king of that. And I'm the king, because I've always had a studio, you know, I've always recorded shit. So I'm the king of, of taking drums that the, 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 at the time the drummer thought was for this song, but it ends up being for that song, you know? And that worked out for me, especially in the demo phase, you know, when I get to like write stuff and, and I just need drums and I don't want to program that shit. And uh, I mean, even before open hand, I had this band called new speak that was like more on the hardcore. And it was just me and my friend that he's a singer and I did everything and programmed the drums and it's straight up hardcore and technical hardcore. And it's just drum machine. And that took me forever, you know, uh, and especially when I did it, which was like 97, 96, 95, somewhere around there. And like, so the, it wasn't even that great of a drum machine. So I'm like, you know, I prefer just to use recorded drums if I could. The song uh, Crooked Crown, which is a, another banger, one of my favorite songs. Yeah, I guess it's not one a... of my favorites, too. <laughs> and it also has uh, some collaboration with Alan Epley, who's in Shiner, who you already professed yeah. your love for earlier. So uh, was, yeah. <laughs> was Alan in Fort Collins with you as well, or this is another uh, kind of piecing together? No, it was a well piecing together. Meaning, I, while we were in Fort Collins, we sent him the song while we were recording, and he came back with he sent back vocals that he recorded, and then they were in different spots, and we kind of just moved them around to what they are that you hear. But and then I just added all the rest of my vocals in there, you know, for the choruses and whatnot. Yeah, but you want to know even a great story with Alan Epley and that song is one, you can only imagine, first of all, I was already honored that he, that he was going to do the vocals. So let's just get past that. And then to get them back and to hear them, you can only imagine my uh, jubilation and glee on how fucking amazing they were. And then number three, now picture a little uh, time has gone by and now Open Hand is touring that album. And... We play Kansas City, and I talk to Al and say, oh, how great would it be for you to come to the show and sing that song? And so we talked about it, and like, he's like, he's, you know, he's down, but it all comes down to work. And we're playing, and at the time, you know, uh, Al worked at this pizza place, and it just so happened that we came up with the plan, and we just ordered a, a shitload of pizzas. <laughs> and he showed up just in time. And I'm not even exaggerating, just in time for that song. And he put the pizzas down and he's got his fucking pizza uniform on everything. And he comes up there, sings the song and bails. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> and I thought, and that, that confirmed that that dude's a legend, you know? No, oh, that's the most <laughs> rock star thing I've ever heard. Mid, mid job. Yeah. Let me just bang out on stage this track and then get these pizzas. Yeah, and it's, and it's not even mid job accountant. It's like mid job here. Put down the fucking pizzas <laughs> and then sing this shit real quick, man. <laughs> yeah, that definitely rules. The song Trench Warfare, which is near the end of the album, it kind of sounds the most, it sounds the most like uh, of the dream song to me. Is that an older song too or is that it just worked out no way? it just worked out that way it started out all every song on there had some uh started out with a different life kind of in, in a way but that just evolved it just no that wasn't that old you know it's everything's old because five years go between each record 
So everything in my mind is not from yesterday. It's from like, oh, I hope that song from last year, you know? So by the time so, You and Me comes out, are you like sick of it or you're still stoked about it? It came out better than I ever could have hoped. All right, just making sure because I you was know? soaked on it. So I want to make sure that we're all no, no, on the I same love, energy. Guys, I fucking, dude, all of, I love, I love, I'm biased, man. And I'm not even conceited. I love all my shit. And it's, I know it's not the cup of tea for everybody, but I'm, I'm ex, especially proud of you and me. I thought that's a great, I still to this day, I think that's a true classic rock record, dude. The uh, the album ends with Hard Night, which every time I ever saw Open Hand, which wasn't a lot of times, but when I did get to see you, you either opened or ended with Hard Night. So that must be a song that you really yeah. like a lot to choose that position for the set. We'll be back after a quick break. You still loading them and heating them up with all your single shit you've been dropping. You feel me? Loading them up on. It, it only takes structure. And, and, you know, just paying attention to the climate of the game. Yeah. Nah, man. So do do your homies uh got a role in your in your little? You mean? Yeah, yeah. We all we all artists over here, man. I'm trying. Oh, yeah. I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm trying to get them on there. Yeah. Look, 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 look. We all artists, man. We go. You feel me? We gonna have this like. Bro, me and my man, like me and my man Kyle, we be like, I don't know, we play, we play with this <laughs> shit. Right now. This I go lie, we play with this shit right now for for. Oh, I don't, don't play with it. Take that shit serious. Uh, yeah, because I thought it had the most powerful, and I like to, uh, it, it's not on the album, but live, I always did a real, like, elongated loop kind of thing to open it, and, like, I do this kind of real, like, Fripp-inspired kind of, uh, Frippatronics loop thing with that, with that riff from Hard Night, and I just do that for, like, that was always a deal, I was like, okay, I'll just get this loop going, because everyone especially to start the show because, you know, I get this loop going and get it going for a couple of minutes because everyone time in like in the band time to like, just get their fucking minds together and, you know, or get a drink or whatever the hell and get the loop happening, sets the tempo, you know, sets the mood and then kicks in, you know, drama, <laughs> some kind of something, you know, some thought process into the set a little, at least, you know, <laughs> No, I like it. I, I that's how I knew that that song was important to you because of the the set list. You know that it was a very it had to be a specific choice. It wasn't uh, you know just like ah oh, we'll open with whatever. It's you always opened or ended with that song. No, I love that song. I actually, to, if you were to ask me, uh, you know, I, there's there's guitar players on this earth that I just love, but that song in particular, that guitar riff. That is basically the riff of the song. There's only like two riffs in that entire fucking song. And like the main riff of that song to me is a true classic. That's my opinion. I think it'll stand the test of time. Well, that's one thing about this album in general, right? It doesn't sound dated. It doesn't sound like you. It's not something you ha would have to apologize for now. You know what I mean? It's very, it's very much a, a classic sound. You know, rock and roll. The, the style of rock and roll that this is. And I know that sounds funny for me to use that phrase, rock and roll. But you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> no. It's a timeless thing. It's not like it. It wasn't a 
phase or a fad. I know that, you know, stoner rock or whatever is its own thing, but this is even outside yeah. of that, even though it has elements of that, which you're telling me you were high as hell making this, so it doesn't make, yeah. it's, it, it makes sense. But if that's what classifies stoner rock, then yes, it is. <laughs> But uh, but yeah, I think it's that, true to its name. <laughs> I think that it uh, is definitely a timeless sound to it. So I think that's uh, a, a true testament to it. Now, one of the times I did see you was on that Viva La Bam tour with Fight Paris, who are also. Oh uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh Jesus. Do you yeah. have any crazy All stories right. well, from that? That was that's. Say what? Do you have any crazy stories from that tour? I would imagine. That, um. Oh man, uh, to, uh, uh, yeah. Do I? I mean, I have fun stories. I mean, not really the debauchery you would think. I mean, I thought that shit. I thought that the Bam, like the Viva La Bam, part of all that, and that whole jacket. I thought that shit was so lame. But that was just me. I was happy as hell to be on that tour, of course, because any tour where the band could play like House House of Blues at places like. I, First, first of all, how that tour even existed? Like people, I was amazed people would pay money to see this shit, and they were sold out. And like, you know, to see a fucking bunch of like white trashy chicks suck on Don Vito's ugly ass toe, and to do all these drinking games and all this stupid shit, and then also with a couple of bands, you know, and like, I was just amazed. So that was, you know, on my end of it, I was just amazed that was even happening. But we did get to go and uh, we stayed a few nights at that Ryan Dunn's uh, house, the dude from that uh, from that whole thing, and he was cool as hell. I mean, I don't, I don't have a lot of crazy stories. That guy wasn't so crazy off, you know, off camera. There was he had a wife, and everyone had a fun time. I mean, yeah, I don't know. It was just to me, I was more mind blown from the level of, I mean, we, like the band got hotel room, and like. You know, so so you're look, I'm looking at it more from a, a from the band's point of view, as we it was great to be able to sell merch, you know, especially to all these drunk fucks that were there to like spend money and suck toes, and like so there that right there was cool, and then we got hotel rooms, we got to play killer venues, too killer for what it was, and you know what an experience. That was actually, you know, that was actually a pretty, now that I'm looking back at it, that was one of the better tours the band has ever done. <laughs> <laughs> you said Five Parents, right? They, they were eating that shit up to, totally, though. Five Parents had a better reaction. Honestly, and, uh, you know, open hand in general at shows, always, I'm not saying open hands like this cerebral thing or it's like over everyone's head. But I always thought Open Hand was like a band's band, first of all. And, like, uh, you know, I wanted to be, like, you know, respected by other musicians, if anything. But I feel like the crowd, even at that shit, you know, even at the Jackass shit, for an example, I feel like the crowd, you know, when you sit there and play and you're standing there, I'm, like, singing, I'm looking at everyone's faces. I mean, they're staring. Like, you know, there's always that, you know, there's always that couple fuckers, you know, banging their head. But the other rest of the crowd's just like, what the fuck is this? And then, like, I look at a band like Fight Paris, who, to me, is so digestible. I mean, I, I understand. So the crowd ate that shit up, and they had a front man who was all, like, you know, who was constantly, like, what the fuck's up, you know, type of guy. And, like, he was rowdy, and the crowd's rowdy. Whereas Open Hand, I'm not a what the fuck's up type of guy, <laughs> to be honest with you. That's not what kind of singer I am. And, two, 
yeah, I, I, you know, it was what it was. I'm, I was used to just, you know, when, when we play, we get a lot of staring. So I've, I've like, you know, equated that and changed it in my brain to like that staring means like they're trying to figure it out. They're so taken by what they're hearing that their, their brains are trying to decipher this epic shit they're hearing. That's what I try to convince myself of. But then I just wonder, they're just counting down the seconds until the band they came there to see plays, you know? <laughs> no, I don't. I think you're right. So, I think that, that Open Hand is a band's band, that uh, people are are there to enjoy the, the prowess. You know, you're talking about you're doing these loop pedals and stuff like that. It's not exactly... <laughs> it would be weird if yeah. you were what the fuck is up as you go into, you know, Crooked Crown or whatever. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Like, you know, what the fuck's going on? Like, I don't need this shit. Like... And, I'll, you know, I'll tell you a prime example. We played, we got to open up for that band, My Chemical Romance. You remember them? And they, we, and it was in Europe. And, you know, they're fucking humongous. They're huge. I honestly, because I'm just that kind of guy, I just, I, maybe I just don't understand what's going on at the time. But, like, I didn't realize how big they were. So when we, like, we got the offer, everyone was stoked. And I'm like, okay, I gotta check this band out, you know? And, like, wasn't, you know, it wasn't my cup of tea, but at the same time, I got it. And, like, I didn't realize until we got there, and it happened to be in Europe, so already I'm happier than a pig and shit. We get to go to Europe. I don't give a shit who we open for or play with. I don't care. And But it happened to be My Chemical Romance, and little did I know that, you know, 8,000, 10,000 like, kids, there's a, you know, the, I didn't realize. Okay, put it that way, number one. First show of that little tour we did with them was, like, a, like five or six shows. First show was in uh, Glasgow, Scotland, with opening for My Chemical Romance, and the lights were all dark. There was pitch black, and this is a fucking huge venue. This is by far one of the bigger places Open Hands ever played, without a doubt. And so to come out on that stage and everything, you can only imagine when you don't get to do whatever. And like the crowd in the in the darkness. And by the way, we weren't listed on this show on this first show. So on the marquee, it says my chemical romance. That's it. And so in the darkness, everyone sees movement on the stage and assumes it's my chemical romance, you know? And like they're cheering and screaming and cheering. And then the fucking lights go up and it's not my chemical romance. And the fucking place goes instantly silent and to the point where this one guy is yelling who the fuck are you <laughs> and at that moment i started that loop that we were talking about <laughs> <laughs> with no answer like uh, you know like obviously you're if you're applauding you have no idea who's on the stage because if you did you wouldn't be applauding <laughs> and then you and said so what the fuck that. is up we're, we're open hands. Yeah, that's where that's where I needed to break out though. What the fuck's up, Glasgow? That's pretty typical. And then okay, and then to prove to finish the point, for the rest of that show, we had eight thousand staring faces. <laughs> so and then when we left, and the band played next, My Chemical Romance, that same eight thousand kids went ape shit. So. How do you explain that, you know? You warmed them up. Except, yeah, exactly, I guess so. That's, 
that's the story of the band. Is there anything you would have done differently with you and me? It seems like you're pretty pleased with the end results, but is there anything no. that you said you listened yeah. to it so much that you were like, oh, I should have done that guitar track differently? No, 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 no. I'm pretty good with it. You know, I'm pretty good with that record, for sure. I mean, the songs evolved live, so there's times where I was like, ah, oh, if only I had done this, like, like how the song has come out live over years. It would have been cool to kind of like do that little thing in the, on the album, but I never even think about it. You know, I'm down with all the records, the way just the way they are. They're just like little capsules in time, and if people get down with them, that's cool, you know? Being such a big fan of Hum that you mentioned before, I know that Matt Talbot of Hum fame yeah. is on Honey, right? Yeah, yeah. He helped produce that record along with Malinowski, yeah. Yeah, could you imagine? It's the same It's what I was talking about earlier with Epley. So now I can, same with, you know, we get to go to his place. We get to go and be amongst the master, you know, and see what the hell happens. And that was a long time, too. Longer than it probably should have been. But, and so that was pretty epic. And for him to want to partake, I mean, put it this way, for a period there, for a month, open hand, because I went out there solo, Mish, with the intent of, uh, having a couple different drummers, but Jason Gherkin, the drummer who played on a few of the songs, he's in Shiner and Paul Malinowski was in Shiner and Matt Talbot's in hum. And for a month period of working through songs, that was and at the time, my girlfriend, this girl, Brianne, who's a singer on that album and just did a lot of shit on there, played keyboards and whatnot. She, uh, the five of us were the band. So you can only imagine in my world that, the the rhythm section is Shiner. The second guitar player is Matt Talbot. You know, like I was in a dreamland, of course. Yeah, it sounds like fantasy camp. Like you got to pick your. your it was fantasy camp. That's why I was there for so long because we got. An, I got. There was no desire to like to do anything but just jam. We weren't even like recording. We were just jamming out. So like the desire to get to like once again, like get a little stoned and jam. That kicked in for like a month, and it was snowing there, so we were like basically snowed in. So it just worked out to do that, and then incorporate you know the tunes. And I mean, you know, I, I always go to these situations with already the tunes, and I have demos and everything. So we just work on those amongst the jamming, and then get those going, and that's how that worked out. So Matt Talbot sings on Hope's Falls album, but to get him to sing on it, they had to beat him in GoldenEye on Nintendo 64. So what video game did you have to beat him in for him to sing on, honey? Uh, none. I would have... I, that was up there. I do remember that kind of shit. I, none. I didn't... I didn't. He did it. He just did it. <laughs> I don't know if he was hoping to facilitate us moving along quicker. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe he wanted us to get the hell out of there. Seriously, a couple months, and it's like, you gotta go. Honestly, it was more like squatting. I mean, that's the way the you and me record was. It was more like, uh, you know, at the time I was living at people's houses and in, the, and in my band room. So for me, it was fine to just stay at this, to like wherever we got to record. Just try to make that shit last as long as possible. So you could just live there, you know? <laughs> so that's what I was doing at Talbot's in essence. What is your favorite moment of recording you and me in this process? I know that there was a, it was a lengthy one. It was one that you enjoyed. You loved the end results, but what's something that really stands out as a moment that you really appreciate? You know, I could say like, you know, having Al 
I'll uh, sing on that song or, or uh, I don't know, being there was just so cool with that blasting room. One of my favorite moments, honestly, was that I felt so deeply about this album. I mean, maybe I'm not getting that across, but I felt like I wanted to see it through to its end. And it got mastered in New York, in like somewhere in Brooklyn. And it was getting mastered by this guy. Doug Henderson? And it was my favorite and like kind of scariest, but worst moment, but favorite moment of that whole album is after leaving recording and taking the DAC tapes uh, that, uh, to, I flew from Colorado to New York because I did, I wanted to see the whole process finished and I wanted to hear it mastered. And I show up there to New York with the DAT tapes and I got there on a flight, but I really only had like $60 on me and literally, and there's no joke. So I took the death. I find my way with that money to this guy's house in Brooklyn. I'm like, here's the debt. And he, first he's like, who the fuck are you? And I'm like, here are the debts. And he has like, he's like, okay, I'm, I know I'm mastering this, but why are you at my house? You know? <laughs> and like, I try, I, I didn't quite know. I thought for some reason in my, in my mental state, I thought he was just going to like bust this out in a couple hours. You know, that's what I thought for some reason. And there was no way that was going to happen. And a matter of fact, he's like, well, shit, okay. So we go into his like studio and he's like, well, I can get started on it now. He's like, but this is going to take me like a few days. I want to spend time, make a week, two weeks. And I'm like thinking, and I'm sitting in this dude's living room in New York with no money. <laughs> thinking I was going to be right out of there. Like, like I had enough to get back immediately to the airport. And it didn't turn out that way at all, dude. And like, this guy basically let me sleep in his living room for like a few hours, but he did not want me staying there at all. And he's like, okay, so, and I got a flight together the next day. And I realized I was going to be leaving there empty handed. Number one, like the shit's not going to be done. And two, I don't have any money. This guy had to loan me. He's like, and he, I remember him giving me the lecture. Like, dude, you come to fucking New York with like, you know, 50, you, how, like what world do you live in? You know? And this dude had to loan me money to get to Newark, New Jersey. So I could fly out of there the next day. And I, so like, it was a great, on the going there, I was like, fuck yeah, I'm living it, dude. I'm in New York. I'm living it. I'm, I'm taking the package to the guy. We're going to get this done. I'm going to see this through. I'm so proud of the record. And then that shit was dashed. And I had to go into this shit, total shit. My sister had to send money to get a hotel, the shit hotel next to the airport. And I remember that just being like the lone, like a shit time. I just remember like thinking, oh, like, you know, this album better be really worth all this, you know? <laughs> And sonically it was, you know, financially success-wise, yeah, not really.
Thanks so much to Justin for sharing the making of and behind the scenes of one of my favorite rock records of all time. And you can thank him too by checking out the newly released vinyl and cassette versions of You and Me, available on blacktoprecords.bandcamp.com. The cassette's this sick, like, transparent orange. And the vinyl, I think, has a couple different colors. I got this creamsicle orange. I'm, I'm trying to stay thematic. All right. But also, Open Hand just released a new album this year in 2021 called Weirdo, which features guest vocalist Lisa Loeb from that Geico commercial. Remember? She wears the glasses. Also has Britney Snow, who was Kate in John Tucker Must Die. She's singing on the record. So definitely check that out because it's awesome as well. I really do appreciate you checking out the Living with a Podcast Meet Meep spinoff. And be sure to check Meet Meep Pod on Instagram for all the latest and greatest updates, mainly the greatest updates. But in the meantime, and in between time, my name is Ryan Rainbow. This is Meet Meep, and yes, that's the best that I could come up with. Bye!